Paul here is discussing his motives, which kept him laboring for Jesus Christ in spite of the difficulties, as I pointed out. People sometimes think that if you're having difficulties, it means God's mad at you or displeased with you, and that you need to get right with him, and that if you were right with him, you wouldn't have any difficulties. Well, that is not the truth. Indeed, God heaps difficulties on us because it keeps us humble. That's one way that, he, that it keeps us humble. So, And Paul, in spite of his uh, difficulties, his hardships, his discouragements, kept on serving Jesus Christ, knowing that God had called him to that to that ministry and that God would keep him in that ministry. And he also saw himself as a servant of Christ, given a stewardship to fulfill. One of these days he would stand before Jesus Christ to give an account of how he had performed in this stewardship, just like all of us. And that's, of course, what we saw there in verse number 10. We must all, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, or good or worthless, literally worthless. He had addressed that earlier there in the uh, third chapter. According to the grace of God given me, verse 10, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. The foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone here of this. But Paul is saying, I, 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 I laid the foundation. Now be careful how you build on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, that is, those things which apply to the will of God, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. The day, the day. What's the day? When we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And it will be revealed by fire. Whoa. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know uh, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Whoa. What's he, what, what's he aiming at there? He's aiming at those people that were in that church that were del literally, deliberately trying to corrupt the work of Jesus Christ. And he's warning them. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, I laid, I'm laying the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. You better be careful how you're building on it.
So that's why he says here, we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You know, if, if we kept that in mind, if we kept that constantly in mind, one of these days I'm going to have to stand before Jesus and he's going to give me a thorough rehearsal of all that I've done, either for him, for his glory, or for myself, which is worthless. Paul, Paul understood then this principle in his ministry, the stewardship principle. I call it stewardship principle. He was merely a servant acting on the behalf of Christ in advancing the kingdom of God on earth. He wasn't advancing the kingdom. He was just God's servant standing in Christ's stead while Christ was ruling in heaven and he was acting on earth. By contrast, Israel, and see these Judaizers, they, they were promoting the fact that, that God has never changed his plans with respect to this. And God doesn't change his plans, but he, but he works out his main plan on earth but uh, that uh, Israel still is the people of God. Paul is trying to say, this is not, this is not, a, this is not so. Why? Israel failed in her stewardship. That's the whole point. Although the people enthusiastically embraced it. The covenant that God made with Abraham now uh, is reinforced on Mount Sinai. And when God literally spoke to them out of the cloud, they heard the voice of God. And when they heard it, they enthusiastically embraced all uh, in, uh, about it, and, uh, even though they had no ability to perform it. And they cried, all that the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses reminds them of it. That's what you said, but that's not what you're doing. Remember what you said, but you're not doing it. See? And, but it, but uh, it caused them to fear the Lord. So they said to Moses, look, you, you go talk to God, and then what he tells you, you bring back to us, and we will do it. Oh, and then God responded to them by, by in Deuteronomy 5.29 by saying, Oh, that they had such a heart as always to fear me and to keep all my commandments. They didn't. And the Lord knew it. And so later in, in Deuteronomy 32 verse 28, He says, For they are a nation devoid of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. And they would discern their latter end. You see the point? If they really understood what was expected of them, they, then, then they would probably have poured out their hearts to God, say, as some of the Old Testament saints did, and David is a great example. Lord, I know me. I know my flesh. I know that in me dwells no good thing. And how to perform that which is good, I do not find. And there they, they would have humbled themselves before God and sought His face, but they didn't. They pridefully believed that they were the stewards of God's kingdom and they were going to do it their way. 
and they corrupted it. They corrupted it greatly. So here's the background. This is the background of this of Paul's words here. And you need to be careful to understand what Paul is saying here because sometimes people read these words and they, they draw their own conclusions and I'll point that out as we go. But the first thing, notice, is that God rejected the Jewish elders as unfaithful stewards of the kingdom. That's the conflict now Paul is having. These Judaizers thought they were the true ambassadors of God and that Paul was a, as a heretic and should be thrown out. But Paul understood that he was also a steward in God's household. But unlike the Jewish elders who worked toward their own ends, Paul desired to please the Lord only in his service as representing Jesus Christ. And he, that's, he's explaining that to them. But how do I know that this is the case of the the uh, the Lord's rejecting the Jewish the Jewish system? Well, just look at Luke chapter twenty, verses nineteen nine to eighteen. I'm not going to read the passage, but it's the parable of the of the uh, wicked tenants. Jesus said a king had a vineyard planted a vineyard, and then he went away, and he left his steward, he, he left stewards in charge of his, of his vineyard. What's the vineyard? Israel. And then uh, when it, it came time for him to receive the fruits of their labors, he sent messengers to them to receive that, his share. Prophets. Preachers, servants, he sent these servants to them. And they kicked them out, threw them away, sent them off. Some, some they killed. So then the, the king said, I'm going to send them my son. Surely they will respect my son. And so they looked and they said, here, ah, there's the son coming. Let's kill him and then the vineyard will be ours. And so he asked, Jesus asked, what, what, what should be done to these guys? Well, in one uh, gospel account, the elders said, they, they, and he, they should, be, these should be taken out and, and brutally murdered and punished for their crime. But in Luke's gospel, it says, uh, and here what I really believe he's reform, uh, informing them of their latter end there, according to Deuteronomy 32, 28, their latter end, he said, he, the Lord, will destroy, come and destroy those tenants, the stewards of the vineyard kingdom, and give the vineyard to others. Who's the others? It's the church. We're now the stewards of the, of the kingdom. And Paul was an apostle laying the foundation of it. The elders were astonished in Luke's account and replied, surely not! And then 
it tells us that he that Jesus looked directly at them and cited their own scripture. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected. That's Jesus. Has become the chief. Has become the cornerstone. In spite of their rejection. And then he pronounced the judgment that was coming upon them that it, and that it would not go else. In verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken in pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. These were unfaithful stewards and the Lord was going to take the kingdom from them and give it to truly faithful stewards. So we read, for the day... For Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear, now listen to this, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in its wings. And you will go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under you, the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord come. Who is the, pro who is the prophet Elijah sent? None other than John the Baptist. And when did that day come? It came on A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. Although the Old Covenant was glorious, it was not permanent. It was never intended to be permanent. Nor could it be permanent. And, the, and here's the, here, the simple fact is, the Holy Spirit of God was not given to them as it is to the New Covenant stewards. That, this fact was seen there, and Paul illustrated that, there by the uh, veiling of Moses. Moses' face. It wasn't veiled because of the brilliance of the glory. It was, it was veiled because the glory faded. He was with God. The bright glory. When he came back to the people, that glory began to fade. And they said, we got to put the veil over his face so the people don't see this. The old covenant had no means to enable those under it to obey it. Could only condemn them in their failure. So Paul refers to it as the ministry of condemnation. Particularly the failure of covenant stewardship. Jesus illustrated this failure in the servant who knew his master. This is in Luke chapter 12, uh, verse 47. The, that servant who knew his master but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a beating. Thus the old covenant would be brought to an end by the introduction of a new covenant to be served by faithful stewards 
enabled by the Spirit. So as we read there in, in uh, verse 42 of Luke 12, Who then is the faithful and wise steward whom the, the master will set over his household to give their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Hmm. So Paul's defense, this Paul's defense is a faithful steward then of the new covenant. This is what he's doing. As a steward of the new covenant, Paul was confident, understanding his service would be both effectual and lasting. So his was a ministry of righteousness as contrasted to Moses' ministry of condemnation. In chapter 3, verse 9. A new covenant ministry would then be successful because it was enabled by the Holy Spirit. given, And that gave Paul true freedom. Said so the Spirit... Where the Spirit of, of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from free, What is freedom? Freedom is the ability to perform without the fear of failure. You know that you're going to be successful because the Spirit is, is enabling you to do this. And uh, failure that, uh, a failure that was even expressed here of the Jews. So even though the ministry was tried by many hardships, Paul says he never lost heart. He had the same spirit of faith that David had because David was one who feared the Lord. Back in and recorded there in Psalm 116 verse 10. I believe, I, I, I believe therefore have I spoken. And this should encourage all believers in the service of the kingdom. The treasure. And then he talks about the treasure. And we, we saw about that. To be, and this is identified as this new covenant stewardship. The ministry of righteousness. Chapter 3 verse 9. Was that this was treasure was then put into what? Jars of clay. Weak and unworthy vessels which is the servant's earthly home. And this earthly home, this weakened vessel here, is wasting away. And this ensures that the success will be of God and for His glory and of His power. So putting this ministry in these weak vessels, the surpassing power, Paul says, would be seen as belonging to God and not the steward. Chapter 4, verse 7. For the steward, grateful, sincere, submissive obedience was the only requirement necessary to glorify God. And this is the interesting thing. That was all God wanted of the old covenant saints. He knew that it was impossible for them to live up fully to the commandments. Nobody can... That's a reflection of the perfection of God. And no sinner can ever live up to the perfection of God. So he wanted them to recognize that and submit themselves to him in humble, grateful, sincere, submissive, 
obedience. Recognizing that he was a loving heavenly father. And as they faithfully, as one faithfully serves the Lord, they wait patiently for the for these weak vessels to receive what God has promised, glorified bodies at the coming of Jesus Christ. So whether at home or away, they make it their aim, Paul says, to please him. Hmm. Is it your aim to please the Lord or to please yourself? Now Paul, in our passage, and this is where we want, and by the way, I'm going to be preaching more on this, so this is just sort of introductory. But uh, two, two things motivated Paul's service. The fear of the Lord. He begins the passage there, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. King James has the terror of the Lord. I think that's a little extreme. Uh, it's the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? We're going to look at that here in a second. But by which then he sought here to persuade his hearers. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade. He's, he talks about we persuade men. But then also we have the love of Christ by which he sought to relate to his hearers. The love of Christ. So now, so then what we have here is Paul's Expression of the fact that he has abandoned his earthly citizenship for an apostle, uh, for an, excuse me, an ambassadorship from heaven. You know, an ambassador. He calls himself ambassador. He says we're all ambassadors for Christ. You know what an ambassador is? That's a, someone who lives in a foreign country, who has been sent by that foreign country to another country to represent the king of the country from which he was sent. Christians are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. In other words, like Paul, we're no longer earthly citizens. We're, we're, we've been sent from the King of Heaven to represent the King of Heaven on earth. And so I see then Paul's motiv motivation here, and we emphasize that consisting two things. Therefore, here, refers to the fact that all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That should always be in our minds. Everything I do is going to be judged by Jesus when He comes again. Knowing this, I'm fearful. See, this really is kind of what describes and de defines the fear of the Lord. My mom used to say to me, when, uh, or to my brothers, I, I was much better than they were, uh, even though I was probably the instigator of most of this trouble that they got into, but uh, they're younger than me. But my mother's one, one of my mother's most fearful sayings was, "Just wait till your dad gets home. <laughs> Just wait till your dad." You know, we knew our dad loved us. We weren't we weren't looking for some terrible figure to come in that that uh, of a horror movie somehow and. That we're going to be screaming and hiding and getting brutalized. That was <laughs> that, that. That's not what mom meant. But my mom said, "Dad has rules. Dad has order. He he has expectations of you. 
You're not living up to the expectations. And you're going to have to answer to him for that. That's exactly what the fear of the Lord is. And I'm going to explain that here. What should have motivated the old covenant leaders motivated Paul. So that the therefore then points to the motive of the, of the fear of God. Mo, uh, Solomon wrote, I perceive, this is in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. He's perfect. Nothing can be added to it or anything taken from it. God has done it. Why? So that people fear before him. He knows what he's doing and whatever he does, he does perfectly and that ought to cause us to fear him. The only thing in life worth doing must be then in keeping with that. The fear of the Lord means to live to please the Lord. Paul views the Lord as a loving father intent on his children becoming what he desires for them. In Deuteronomy 10, Moses instructed the people, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to and, and the fearing of the Lord, then he explains as, walking in all his ways, to love him and to serve him with uh, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. That's verses 12 and 13 of Deuteronomy 10. The Lord's not a cruel, as I said, or mean, and neither does love tolerate wrongdoing. One must understand his love and that he expect and what he expects of those who, whom he loves. Everyone will give a full account to God of how he spent his life, the life which God gave to him. We should think consciously every time I breathe in and breathe out. God is granting me continued life. Feel that thing in my chest beating and every beat says God is granting me life use it to his glory because as Ecclesiastes closes the end of the matter here it is the sum of it here you want to know what the sum is here it is and having heard it all fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man for God, and here again, will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, bad, worthless. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. We do not want to disappoint him through sin or foolishness. One day we'll stand before the land of the tribe of Judah and see him in all his majesty. Oh, we want to be able to give a full account of how we spent our, our life and used His gifts of grace in our service for Him. Then the fear of the Lord drove uh, Paul to say, we persuade others, by which then he means to convince his hearers 
not to fail to live to the glory of God. That's what he means. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. This is our motivation. This is why I'm ministering to you. This is why I'm writing you these letters. This is why I'm being hard on you. I want to convince you to live to his glory and not to yourselves. God is glorified as his people do his will and advance the kingdom. Jesus is very clear. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter. And these are the most terrifying words in the New Testament, in my opinion. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Matthew seven twenty one. And then this prompted John to write, Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The love of the Father, see? For all that is in the world, the, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. It's temporary. With all its desires, but... Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Are you doing the will of God? Then Paul adds, but what we are is known of God. I can't hide anything from him. I can't pull off anything and, and deceive him. He knows it. He knows every thought I think. He knows every deed in the closet. He knows everything. What we are is known of God. And Paul was fully conscious that there was nothing in his life hidden from God. He knows all. He understands all. And this should then produce caution against offending or failing to obey fully his directives in life and service. Then that brings me to, to this. The conscience. The conscience. And this is where, it was where he seems to brag on himself sometimes. But what he's doing here is he is speaking of the fact that what he understands here has developed a sincerity in him that they should know, that they should clearly observe. Yes, what we are is fully known to God, and Paul adds, and I hope it is also known also to your conscience. You should know me. You should know, understand where I'm coming from. That I'm not trying to pull something over on you for myself like these false teachers are. So he, then he emphasized the fact that I don't have any need for letters of commendation either from you or so forth. Don't need that at all. No letters of commendation, no character references or such. But rather, his sincerity ought to be obvious to them. And he uses the term here, boast. In this, you should boast. And this kind of throws us, because we see the boast, the term boast there, in a negative sense. And he may be using terminology that his enemies used. Paul's just boasting. Or we got something, we, we can really boast over Paul here about things. So Paul may, may be using that uh, taking that term from them in this case, 
But what 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 we have here is that this boasting carries, though it carries the negative uh, connotation, in this setting the term actually means the ability to openly support one's claim, seeing the ground of the boast as legitimate. In other words, attaboy, Paul. We're proud of you. This obvious ground of boasting, Paul argued, helped to combat the critical opposition leveled against him in Corinth. True believers in, in that church should have been able to defend the apostle answering those who boast about outward appearance. That's where I think he may have borrowed it from his enemies. Those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. They looked at Paul and they said, he's just a little guy and he's not very good looking and he's not, he, doesn't, he doesn't wear Fifth Avenue suits and when he speaks he kind of stumbles around a little bit. It's hard to listen to. But his letters are waiting and powerful. <laughs> it's not about out outward appearances. It's what's in the heart. Some may have placed their confidence in rhetorical skills, spiritual gifts, or their status as Jews. We're Jews. Well, Paul says, so am I. <laughs> Paul boasted that his weakness displayed God's power more clearly. He also challenged them to see their need to depend solely on God's crosswork rather than their own self-proclaimed status. Did this make Paul seem like he was crazy? Well, that, some thought that, or foolish, or out of his senses. Perhaps, to some, Paul says, but then he reminds them that if, he, if, if that were the case, it was for God. Or if, on the other hand, he seemed like he was in his right mind, it was for the benefit of the church. Nothing was to be seen as beneficial to Paul himself. I'm living for the Lord and I'm living for you. I have no ambition for myself. This brought, brings us into the fact that Paul was motivated by his, to serve by the love of Christ. Some teach that Paul here was citing the love of Christ either to mean his love for his own or his or their love for him. This observation misses the point entirely. The love of Christ controlled him in his ministry. And, and, uh, and what I believe the emphasis here is he is focusing on the fact that Jesus loves both Jew and Gentile equally. The Jews thought, we are the people of God. We are the seed of Abraham, God's friend. We are far superior to anybody else on earth. They are Gentile scum dogs. No, Paul says, that's not, that's not true. And that's, I believe, is the emphasis here on the love of Christ. Christ loves the Gentiles. He called me to be an apostle to them. I'm given my life. I'm a Jew and I'm given my life to their salvation because he loves them too. 
He loves them too. Rather than having a prejudice against or thinking of himself as superior to the Gentiles, which I think characterized his critics. It was interesting. Uh, you could convert to Judaism, but you could never be a Jew. In the Old Testament, you could, you could convert to Judaism, but you could never be a Jew. And that always made Gentile believers in Judaism second-class citizens. And Jesus said, not in my church. I'm not going to have any second-class citizens. So there was no prejudice. And he saw Christ as loving equally all for whom he died. Now here, this is this passage here is also often taken to, to uh, emphasize the fact that Christ died for all men. No, it's not. It's not every person here, but it's all in the sense of both Jew and Gentile. Christ died so that Gentiles could be saved, not just Jews. And uh, therefore, he says, they should stop living for their own sake, and live for the sake of him who died and was raised there in verse 15. Christ's death breaks the power of sin so that the living believer can fulfill God's purpose for his life and, and has an equal standing with every other believer with Jesus Christ. This understand that thing I believe is really plainly taught there in verse 16 when he says from from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, whether they're of German or whether they're uh, Norwegian or Polish or uh, Jewish or whatever. We don't regard anyone according to the flesh. This also agrees with what Paul wrote there in Romans. What then? Are we Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek or Gentile, are under sin. Romans 3.9 And in other words, here, God's redemptive purpose involves all sinners, both Jew and Gentile alike. So Paul's not arguing here for universal redemption that Christ died for all. But I'm going to close it here because, and conclude here with this. Paul shows how Christ has reconciled both living Jews and believing Gentiles into believing Jews and believing Gentiles into one entity, Christian. Here, here Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 11, here is not Greek or Gentile and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian. Barbarians are, were looked down upon. Scythians were really scorned. <laughs> Slaves were freemen. But Christ is all and in all. Wow. Colossians 3.11 Or in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off, 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You Gentiles who were far off from the covenants of promise are brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's done away. That he might create in him, in him one new man in the place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility. Ephesians 2, 13 through 17. Father, thank you for Paul. For his earnestness for you. His sincerity in serving you. Lord, may we also experience that same thing by Your Spirit, through Your Word. Be stewards of the New Covenant. Lord, not thinking ourselves superior in any way. Sadly, Lord, this is what ha what's happened with many denominations. Is one denomination thinks it's better than other denominations because of some truth that they think they have found that nobody else holds. Rather, Lord, I pray that you tear down all these walls, that we may again be one, that, it, that Christianity would be your work, because you said, I will build my church. No, oh God, we pray, bring it here, bring it here. And we just praise you for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen.